I love that in a world that is changing so rapidly, God says, you don't have to keep up with all that because I'm the one who was and is and is to come. And I have given you truths. I've given you a rock to stand on that will never change. We're, in, we're walking through our series, really beginning this weekend on essentials. This is what every Christ follower should know and understand. We're just walking through our doctrinal statement, what we believe And if you missed last week, Pastor concluded his message with a challenge for us to immerse ourselves in Scripture or the Bible. So this week, we launch into the essential of the Bible. In our doctrinal statement, it reads, We believe that the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is the inspired Word of God and is the only basis and final authority for our faith and practice. So today, I'm going to explain to you the unmistakable power of this book and the unmistakable miracle and power of the Bible. So you can enjoy this book because if you understand something more, you love it more. So my hope today is to help you understand the Bible. Let me just start with a couple of must-know facts about the Bible. Number one, the word Bible means book. It's the Greek word biblos, and that's how we get the word Bible, but you need to make sure you put down a capital B book, not a little B book, because it's a book like no other. It is the most read, it's the most translated, it is the most sold and most talked about book in history. It was written over a period of 1,600 years in over a dozen countries on three continents in three languages by people from all walks of life. And if you just step back from simply a literary point of view, and look at the Bible, that is absolutely stunning and absolutely amazing. How could you get that amount of people over that long a period of time, some speaking Hebrew, some speaking Aramaic, some speaking Greek, to all have the same theme, the same point? It's because there are about 40 writers, but there was only one author, and the author is God. It is inspired. Only God could have done it. Man held the pen but God wrote it. 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. So God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. There's a couple more major things you need to know when you come to the Bible and understanding the Bible. It's comprised of 66 books with two major divisions, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, these books that make up the Bible are not in chronological order. I remember being a young man sitting down to read the Bible, and I'm like, what book is not in chronological order? Blew me away. But that's because the books that make up the Bible are organized by what type of book they are, and that makes it difficult for the person who just wants to sit down and read it cover to cover. It doesn't even really read that way. Let me break it down for you. The Old Testament starts out with the law. That's five books, and this is where uh, the law was given. It's written by Moses. It has the creation, the flood, Abraham, Moses, and the Ten Commandments. And then we have the historical 12 books. This has Israel's history after Moses. Then it goes all the way to the Old Testament timeline when the Jews would have come back from exile. Then you have the poetical which is five books. And if you wanted, you could buy a chronological Bible 
and you would see that all this poetry is inserted into the historical section. And when it's talking about that person's life and who that person is, then it would have their poetical writings. And then the prophetical, which is 17 books and five major prophets, because those books are quite a bit longer, and minor prophets, not because they're less important, because they're quite a bit shorter. And then at the end, there's 400 years. And people call it the 400 years of silence, but it's really not 400 years of silence. It's just that no biblical books were written during that time. A lot of things were written and a lot of things were happening. It's a time in history when we would have the Greek conquest with Alexander the Great, then the Roman conquest. And we know about that because that's where the Christmas story picks up with the Romans and Jesus and Jesus coming. And we have the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And then you have the book of Acts, which is the historical record of the early church. After Jesus ascended into heaven, churches were planted. A movement began that, hello, we're a part of today. We're a part of the church planting movement that started all the way back in the book of Acts. And letters were written to these churches. They were called epistles. And there were 21 books, Romans through Jude. And they give us instruction and teach us how to be the church and how to live and how to spread the gospel while we wait for Jesus' return. And then the book of Revelation, which is prophecy for the last days. I hope that helps you get a little better understanding of how the Bible's organized. It's also, each one of those books is organized into chapters and verses. So like when you see someone holding up John 3.16, that's the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16. And the question is now, why these books? Like, how were these books the ones chosen to be in the Bible, and did they get it right? Because the word on the street is that the Bible is a fabrication of man. The word on the street is that some stuff got added to it, some stuff got taken away, and it's just all made up by man. And the the powers that be controlled this. But I want to explain how these books were canonized into the Bible, meaning how they were chosen to be part of the Bible. The Old Testament was put together by the Jews long before Jesus, and they had very strict criteria. And when it comes to the Old Testament, I could give you a whole list of their criteria and how it was done, but I'm pleased to tell you we've got the endorsement of all endorsements that they got it right because Jesus affirmed every section of the Old Testament. He affirmed and endorsed the creation story, Noah and the flood, Abraham, Moses, the law, the historical accuracy, the Psalms, Job, Solomon, the prophets. And you could look more into that if you want. But if you have God himself affirming the accounts of the Old Testament, that's all we need. But let me give you some of the criteria that was used for the 27 books of the New Testament. And many have this picture that a bunch of guys just all got into a room and they had these letters and these books and there were some they liked and some they didn't, so they just held a vote and that became the New Testament. No, that's, that's not accurate. They had criteria. I'll give you three of those criteria. Number one, a letter or an epistle, a book, it had to be written by an apostle or someone affirmed by an apostle. And that's huge because Jesus chose these people. He chose the apostles. And criteria number two, it had to be accepted by the early church. The early church, those first Christ followers, were able to affirm these letters, these books. 
they were able to say, yes, that's accurate. We saw Jesus there doing that. Yeah, he said that then. Yes, the Apostle Paul, that's what he's been saying all along. Yes, this is accurate. And they confirmed and accepted these writings and started sharing them about. In criteria number three, it had to be in agreement with the rest of the books. So you couldn't have one book say something different than the rest of the books. And the bottom line here is God led this process. God wasn't going to go to all the trouble to inspire Scripture just to see it lost. And maybe you say, well, I'm sorry, Ryland, I just can't trust that. I can't rely on that. Well, I want to give you some reasons today why the Bible can be trusted. I want to give you seven reasons. Number one is it's historically accurate. It's not just a book of great principles. It's historically accurate. Psalm 33, 4 says, for the word of the Lord, it's not only right. Yes, it's right, but it's not only right. It is true. Now, if you want to know if anything is historically accurate, it has to pass three tests. Okay, I'm not talking about Christian tests here. I'm just saying if you want to know if anything is historically accurate, it's going to have to go through these three tests. And number one is eyewitness accounts. These are not hearsay stories in this book that someone heard and then just wrote down. No, almost all of Scripture is written by people who were actually there or written by people who interviewed and investigated and interviewed the people who were actually there. The Gospels, for instance, were written by people who lived and walked with Jesus and saw those things happen. Or in the case of the Gospel of Luke, he went and investigated and interviewed Christ's followers and put together the Gospel of Luke. And they saw and heard these things for themselves. So that's why the Gospels align the way they do. And that's why four different accounts say the same thing. The same thing. Now, I will tell you, the Gospels do not say word for word the same thing. They don't. You read through them. It's not word for word. If they were word for word the same thing, we would have to throw them out because we would know that they were not true. Now, every one of you has seen this on your favorite crime TV drama. If you were to pull four witnesses into the room and interview them one by one and ask them the same questions, and they all told you word for word exactly the same thing, what would you know? You would know that they got together beforehand, those witnesses, and corroborated their story. But what you have with the Gospels is them going through event by event and saying the same thing, but it has their point of view and their things would have stood out to them based on their life in a different way. It's very, very powerful. Okay, they didn't have to sit down and say, hey, uh, so what are you going to put after Jesus fed the 5,000? Because I don't really know what to put there. No, they, they saw what happened. They knew what happened. Moses didn't hear about the parting of the Red Sea. He was there. The second test for historical accuracy is it has to be recorded and copied with extreme care. The Old Testament has been copied and cared for better than any other thing ever written. And this is probably why God entrusted some of the most meticulous people on the planet, the Jewish nation, to do this job. Because the Jewish scribes had a standard that no one else has ever had to record history. They didn't even copy, like when they sat down to copy the Bible, a manuscript from the Bible, they didn't even copy it word for word. They copied it letter to letter. 
And when they copied the first five books called the Pentateuch, they knew what the middle letter in the Pentateuch was. And when they finished, they'd find that middle letter. They'd count both ways. And if the numbers weren't right, they threw the whole thing out. No one has ever had a standard of some of the things that they did to copy and record history. Now, all the books that were written during the times of the, the Bible were written, were written by hand on parchments or papyrus. So when Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, for instance, there was an original letter on papyri inspired by the Word of God. Now, we don't have that original letter today because it just wouldn't last. It would disintegrate. There's nothing written that would last thousands of years on a piece of papyri. So what we have is early manuscripts or ancient copies of these works. Now, I just want to show you how this compares to other ancient pieces of literature. Homer's The Iliad was written in 800 BC. The earliest copy or manuscript we have is from 100 AD, and we have 643 ancient manuscripts. Julius Caesar wrote The Gaelic Wars in 50 BC. The earliest copy we have is from 980 AD, and we have 10 ancient manuscripts. Josephus was a historian writing during or just after the time of Christ, and he wrote the Antiquities of the Jews in 95 AD. We stake historical claims on his works. They're fact. While the earliest copies we have are from 1050 AD, that's a thousand year span from when it was written to the earliest copy we have and with less than 30 ancient manuscripts. The New Testament was written between 50 and 95 AD. A fragment of a New Testament manuscript exists dating back all the way to 125 AD. That's a 50-year span between the time of writing and the earliest fragment of a manuscript. And so just in Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, we have 5,000 ancient manuscripts. That's not counting Latin manuscripts, which would be thousands more added to that. So when you look at this list, what conclusions do you make? Should we conclude that the Iliad, the Gaelic Wars, the writings of, of Caesar, the writings, the historical person of Josephus should be thrown out? No, what you conclude is that God wanted to ensure that his inspired words would have an overwhelming amount of manuscript evidence so that you could know as a follower of Jesus Christ today, opening your Bible, that you weren't in the minority lane, you were in the majority lane when it came to durable manuscript evidence that the Bible has been recorded and copied with extreme care. That little fragment from 125 AD that I was talking about It's called Ryland's Papyri, and that's because it belonged to a collection that was purchased by John Ryland's, and yes, I'm named for that that manuscript. This this fragment was found in a collection of things in Egypt in the early 1900s. It was taken to Africa and circulated among believers there, and somehow this fragment survived. This tiny fragment survived. And what's cool about it is it's from John 18. So in these very verses are the actual words of Jesus. The actual words of the word. 
If you want to add on to this, the Dead Sea Scrolls, so much more that I don't have time to talk about today. But there's a myth that this thing's been changed, and what I'm reading today isn't really what was written down. It's not true. It's not true. Because there's been so much extreme care in the recording and copying. Number three, the third historical test that something has to pass is archaeological confirmation. And I'll just shoot straight with you that there are some things in the Bible that have not been verified archaeologically. And I hope you're okay with that. But you need to know and you need to celebrate today that as each year passes, there is more and more discoveries made that don't disprove the veracity of Scripture archaeologically, but bear out the veracity of Scripture archaeologically. For instance, they're still excavating areas where biblical events happened. And the Old Testament talks about many different empires, and one of the empires it talks about is the Hittite Empire. And for years, nobody could find any record of the Hittite Empire, and people would say, well, the Bible writers just made this up. It doesn't exist until early 1900s. They dug around in Turkey and uncovered the capital, the Hittite capital, and the records of their civilization. I'll give you one from the New Testament. In the 1800s, Sir William Ramsey set out to Asia Minor, or much of the book of Acts takes place. And he said, if I could just go there and dig around, I could prove that this... <laughs> There's authorities and governors and places and islands and all this stuff that that's not how it maps out. That's not really what's there. And he says, I could disprove the book of Acts and therefore disprove the New Testament. But as he did his archaeological work, he became convinced of the reliability of the book of Acts. And in the process became a Christ follower. And in the process of digging for the truth, he found it. Don't you love that? He gave, he gave his report, and at the end he said this about Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. Luke is a historian of the first rank, not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. If you hang around long enough, no telling what we're going to dig up. Because the truth is there, and we only keep digging more up. Number two, the second reason it can be trusted is because it is scientifically accurate. That's why the Bible is right, even when the science of earlier days contradicted the Bible. Psalm 148 says, Let every created thing give praise to the Lord, for he issued his command, and they came into being. And he set them in place forever and ever, and his decree will never be revoked. And that's why as the science changes, you don't have to update the Bible. You realize that science kind of evolves, right? If you don't think so, go look at at your kid's grade school science book. They ain't using the one you used, okay? Stuff's changed. So why is it you don't have to change the Bible? Well, the Bible isn't a science book, but it is scientifically accurate. One common belief was that the earth is flat. But just five or six hundred years ago, we discovered it's round. The Bible knew that. Isaiah said, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. The word circle in Hebrew is sphere, where we get the word globe. Another common belief was that the earth had to be held up. And the Greeks believed it was by Atlas, and the Egyptians believed it sat on five pillars. But the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, says he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. 
he suspends the earth over what? Nothing. How did Job know that? God told him. Another common belief was the number of stars could be counted. Hipparchus in 150 BC counted the stars. There were 1,022 of them. (laughs) Then 300 years later, Ptolemy came along and said, Hipparchus got this all wrong. There's 1,026. (laughs) Then he counted again and he got a different number. All along, the Bible was saying in Jeremiah, the stars of the sky cannot be counted. Number three, it's prophetically accurate. If man wrote the Bible, it's a great risk for them to fill it with things that are foretold and then have to come true. Because if any one of the prophecies don't come true, then the prophecies aren't reliable anymore. But there are over 1,000 prophecies in Scripture, over 300 for Jesus alone. He fulfilled every single one. Everything that's prophesied to date has come true exactly as the Bible said it would. How would the prophets know all that? For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And as you dig around in the prophecies of the Bible, it takes more faith to believe that all of this has happened just by coincidence than the faith it takes to believe that God orchestrated it. Number four, the Bible is thematically unified. How could you get that amount of people over that long a period of time to have the exact same theme without contradiction? How does that happen? If only one person wrote it, well, yeah, that would make sense. The Koran, it's written by one person. The writings of Buddha, it's written by one person. As you look around at all the different sacred texts of other religions, most are written by one person. A few of them have the contributing factors of several different people. But as you read the Bible, you get the symmetry of one powerful story, and that is how Jesus Christ is creating and restoring all things for his glory. And you get that story from several people who never even met each other, lived in different times, dealing with different issues, under the influence of one God. In Luke 24, 27, it says, Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he sat down with them and they went through the Old Testament. And he says, here's, here's where I am in this story. Here's where I am in this account. Here's where I am here. Here's what I was up to during this time. Here's how this was all for my glory. You see, the Bible is about God. And it's about Jesus. And number five, it's trusted by Jesus. There are several verses I could have used here. But in Matthew 5, he says, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I'll tell you, there are things in this book I don't understand. And there are things in this book that because I believe them, I will look like a fool to the rest of the world. And there are things in this book that because I will absolutely never renounce them, I may one day be persecuted for believing them. But in the middle of all that stands Jesus Christ, Son of God, my Savior and Messiah, who lifted me up from the miry pit, the pit of despair, and he placed my feet on a solid rock, and he has steadied me as I walked along. 
Number six, it has survived all attacks. The enemy absolutely wants to do everything he can to keep you away from this book. And that is why the Bible is the most despised, derided, denied, disputed, dissected, debated, destroyed, and outlawed book ever. And guess what? Still here. I'm holding it today. Voltaire, Voltaire, he was a famous French philosopher in the 1700s. He was a brilliant atheist, and and one day he made a very bold statement. He said, 100 years from today, the Bible will be a forgotten book. And after Voltaire died for nearly 100 years, his homestead was used as the book depository for the French Bible Society, and they sold Bibles out of his house. (laughs) It's now a museum, and people have forgotten Voltaire. Nobody forgets the Bible. I want you to read this verse aloud with me. And I didn't say a soft, I said aloud. It's, it's 1 Peter 1, 24 through 25. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It's still changing lives. No one's been able to stop it. No one will be able to stop it. They can't and they won't because the church stands together and says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is the power of God, and it brings salvation to everyone who believes, and it will change your life in Jesus' name. It absolutely will. Number seven, it has transforming power. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, yes, you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you go all in on the Bible, it will change your life for the good. And the word on the street is that the Bible and God and the church want to suck the fun out of your life and want to drain your life dry. And that's just not true. The Bible will make your life more meaningful, more significant than you have ever dreamed. All right, well, maybe you say, Rylan, this is all very convincing, sounds great. And I'm on board, but I just struggle in reading the Bible. Maybe you say, I don't know why I just can't read the Bible. Well, I want to help you out with that a little bit. One of the first things you need to do is you need to go buy a translation of the Bible that you understand and enjoy reading. And there are several different English translations or versions of the Bible, and they all fit into really three categories. I want to give you those three categories. The first one is formal equivalency, and that's translated word for word. These Bible translations are translated word for word from these ancient manuscripts. And then there's functional equivalency, and these are great for devotional reading. That They're translated thought for thought, and you have the New Living Translation, Good News, the English Version, Contemporary English Version. I starred the NIV because it's kind of a hybrid of the formal and functional. What happened was a hundred scholars got together, and they translated it kind of both ways, and it's the, most, so it's the best-selling modern-day English version of the Bible. And then the third category is paraphrase, and those would be rephrased English translations, and these are modern-day English, and they can be very helpful. I have translations of the Bible in in each category, and as I'm reading along, there's something I don't understand. I'll read it from the formal, I'll read it from the functional, and I'll read it from a paraphrase, and that helps me understand it. But hey, do you want to know which translation up there is absolutely the best one? 
the one you will read. That is the best one. And we're not really as a church going to push a specific translation of the Bible on you because the translation is not the essential here. The essential is that the Bible is inerrant, it's the final authority, and it's the Word of God. So we're not going to push one on. Also, each one of those translations, you may not realize this, but they're translated into different reading levels. So, I mean, we can't really... I mean, we'd be foolish to say, okay, everyone's going to read at this reading level and from this translation, that's going to burn a lot of people out on the Bible. So my encouragement to you would be to go to a Christian bookstore so you know that the Bibles are, are Christian Bibles. They're not from any other religions or anything goofy. And you get a good study Bible in one of those translations. And a study Bible will help you know who wrote the book, give you some background information to whom it was written, when, why. And then if you've never really read the Bible before or haven't in a long time, my encouragement would be for you to start with the book of John, read through that, then go into the book of Acts, and then go right on into the book of Romans, read those three back to back. You don't have to do it this afternoon, just dive into those, and it will be the most powerful reading you've ever done in your life. Now I have one more section for you today. And it really wouldn't be right for us to leave today without talking about what the Bible says we should do with the Bible. You tracking with that? This is what the Bible, what Scripture is saying we should do with Scripture. And number one is we should honor the Bible. In the book of Nehemiah, we see the wall of the city of Jerusalem was in ruins. The city was in ruins. The faith was in ruins. The people of God were in ruins. But God gave Nehemiah a vision to rebuild the people of God. And to rebuild the people of God, Nehemiah knew that he had to start with this wall and their protection. So he rebuilt the wall around the city against great opposition. And then he regathered the people, and once the people were regathered, a tower was built up in their midst. And a scribe by the name of Ezra went to the top of the tower, and it says, Ezra opened the book, all the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, now the book that he is about to open is the book of the law. It's just the first five books, the book of the law. This ain't Psalm 23. This ain't Romans 8. This isn't the Gospels. He's opening the law. And the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen. Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now think about this for a moment. Yes, it was set in motion by a great demise. And now God is resurrecting the hope of his people. But it would be like if the Gospels were taken away from Kansas City, the Kansas City area, and all the church doors shut and locked and rotting from the inside out, and a new voice comes along a generation later and is opening up, bringing the Gospels back to our community. And when this happened, all the people could see Ezra, and they stood up in honor of the Word of God. And then he praised God, and then everyone praised God, and there wasn't even a message yet. It was just an honor and a respect for the Word of God. So the Bible's not like the periodical you just got in the mail. 
The Bible's not up there with this trilogy that you're really into. The Bible isn't like this news story that you were reading. It's not just another app on your phone like I got the weather and I've got Facebook and I've got the news and now I've got the Bible. When we take the Bible in our hands, we don't have to physically stand up, but we better stand up in our hearts and honor the Bible. Number two, we need to be under the Bible's authority. Just a reminder for you, God is in charge of our lives. And the way he leads and directs our lives is through the indwelling spirit of God and the person of Christ through the living word of God. So the way God is going to instruct and lead and correct, alter, shape, change, modify, or increase your life is not by some random process. It's by the living word of God. But for me and you, the challenge here is to be under, to humble ourselves under the authority of the word of God. So as we honor it, we want to be under it. And when Ezra opened the book from that tower, that physically happened. They were honoring it, yet they were under it. And for me and you, the challenge is to live lives of humility, the humility that it takes, because we're hard-hearted people who will reject God's best for us if it doesn't line up with what we want in that moment. So we've got to get under the word and let it be our authority. Colossians 3.16 tells us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the word dwell means let it fully move in and take over the habitation. So the word dwell isn't that it comes into my life every once in a while and stays in the guest bedroom. No, the word dwell is that it it moves in and has its run of the household in my life. But I'll tell you, I think I can do it better than God sometimes. And I want to slow down when he's saying speed up. And I want to speed up when God's saying slow down. But the result when I bring myself under the authority of the Bible is that it will have transforming power in my life, and it will set me free. And lastly, the Bible tells us to memorize the Bible and meditate on the Bible. Now, let me explain what I mean here. Memorize. The Bible instructs us to to simply remember certain things in here. And there are verses that as you read the Bible, you're going to want to remember them. You're going to want to memorize them. And you might say, okay, Ryland, I am really not good at memorization. And I would say you are absolutely amazing at memorization because you could think about all the things you remember right now and it would blow you away. In fact, I would bet that you could remember word for word the criticism you took a little bit earlier, that negative comment someone made to you. I would bet that you can remember it word for word, that you've dwelt on it, that you've let that move in and have its way in your life we can certainly remember some things from Scripture and let that move in. We could certainly remember a verse or a passage or a section and have that move in and dwell and kick everything else out. 
and meditate on it. Now, meditation, that word has kind of been hijacked. It doesn't mean anything spooky or, or, or scary or nothing weird like a trance. It just means that you dwell on it. You think about it. You study it. You internalize it. You make it a part of who you are. Now, what do you think it would look like if we as Christ followers and we as Rockbrook Church did these three things? These three things with the Bible. I think it would absolutely transform our lives. And I think it would be absolutely convincing evidence to the unbelievers in our lives that the Bible is right and true. You see, I did not give you this message and these points in this outline today to give you ammunition so that you could go out and have all these great points for your next argument on the truth and veracity of Scripture. We don't need to go out and defend the Bible. Whenever we try to do that, we have taken the wrong approach. Whenever we get into a position where we feel we have to prove the Bible to somebody else, it either doesn't work, one in a million it might, but normally it's just going to create an argument nobody can win. And what happens when we take on the notion that we have to defend or prove the Scriptures, we've got it backwards. Because the scriptures prove and defend themselves. They're doing fine on their own because it's living and active and powerful. Now, if scripture is dead and dormant, then we better get busy and we've got a lot of defending to do. But they're living, they're active, they're defending themselves. We don't lift scripture up. Scripture is what is lifting us up. So what do you do if someone says, well, the Bible is just full of errors. It's not trustworthy. It's just written by man. Well, the first thing you don't do is say, well, I believe it is, and I'm going to prove it to you. Because A, you're not going to prove it to them. And B, that's just a bad way to enter into an exchange with anyone. The better response would be to ask this question. So, What do you lean on to bring direction and hope into your life? And they're going to give you one of two responses. Well, they're going to say, well, I don't need anything to do that. I've done that for myself. Or they're going to say that they rely and lean on another sacred text from another religion to give them hope and direction in their life. And you can just say, well, I'm glad that's rocking your world. But I've just got to tell you that there's a part in here that's radically transforming my life and I'm going through this thing right now and my family's going through this thing and this piece right here is giving me so much confidence and so much clarity and so much hope as I navigate this world. And you see what you're doing there? You don't have to defend scripture. You're showing, you're proving how scripture is defending you and lifting you up and steadying you. It's doing fine. And you might say, no, the Bible's not doing fine. People don't believe it anymore. Ryland, look around. Well, just wait them out. Wait civilization out, and the Bible will still be there shining in to the darkness because it's the same yesterday, today, and forever because he is the one who was and is and is to come. And if he's the living word, we are standing on good ground that's not going to fall or shake beneath us. 
I want, I want to close with an image. It's a picture. Probably many of you have seen it. It's a picture of an object in a museum. It's in the 9-11 memorial in New York City. I haven't been yet, but I saw this picture of this particular thing there. It was found in 2002 in the rubble from the attack. If you remember back to then, there was the attack in 2001, and then for about a year or more, they were going through the rubble from that attack. And in 2002, firemen stumbled onto this piece of wreckage, and it looks like a rock, but it's metal, and what happened was in a flash of intensity, someone's Bible was instantly forged to this piece of metal. So in an instant, the Bible and the metal became inseparable forever. And the metal in the process of everything going on was sheared apart. So there was so much great force, so much intensity that the metal could be sheared into a fragment and the Bible permanently pressed into this metal. That almost a year later, it would be laying there in that condition, open to the Sermon on the Mount and the very words of Jesus Christ. And that's the possibility for you and for me, that we could be so forged, so fixed, and so fused to the living word of God that nothing, nothing could ever separate us from it. And that we would then be unchanging, solid as a rock in a changing world. Would you bow your heads with me? God, thank you for the gift of of your word. Thank you for the life and the light that come from it. Thank you for the durability of it, the strength that we get from your word. And God, we just pause today and we praise you for its absolutely unique message. A message that there is a creator and that he loved the world so much that he gave his life for it. And God, we believe it. And we're praising you for eternal life. We're not ashamed of it, for it is the truth that set us free. It's through Jesus' name we pray. Amen.